0: One of the great things about being a parent or or a pet owner, actually, is that you get to name your child or your dog or your cat or your turtle or your fish. I don't know. Anyone have fish that have names? You do? Okay, you do name fish then. I didn't know if fish got names or not, but I guess so. My cousin had a turtle named him Bob. So one of the great things, going back to my My original point of being a parent or a pet owner, is that you get to name your child or you get to name your pet. Uh, When Angie and I adopted Selah, there was a moment where we were with Selah's birth uh, mother, and we were discussing the name. And there was this opportunity for us to discuss together what we would like to name our daughter. And uh, Angie and I came forward and said, well, we really love the name Selah. And she asked, well, what does it mean? Well, Selah is a Hebrew word. Many of you may know it. It's in the Psalms and it's really an instruction. It's an instruction to the choir to pause, stop the, the singing, stop moving forward in the Psalms so that the congregation can reflect on the things that have been spoken or, or sung in that Psalm previous. And as you're reflecting on, on what you have just heard read or you have sung yourself, you, you glorify God and you praise God. So we like the name, but it was especially meaningful to us because we had wanted a family for so long. We had wanted a daughter for so long, and finally God had given us a daughter. So it was an opportunity for us to pause, to reflect on our journey to that point, and then to praise God for all that he has given to us. Now if you name your turtle Bob, or some of you name your fish something, uh, you may not put that much thought into it. For example, my parents, they named me Adam. Now, that's a strong Hebrew name, right? Well, it comes from the, the Hebrew word Adama, which is earth or soil, which means that really my name means dirt. And my last name is Brown. So my name is, is basically Brown Dirt. Uh, Angela's name is—it means messenger. So your name, does it have a meaning or is it like Brown Dirt? It just sort of is your name don't know a lot of different ways that we name our children and so on but when God names a person he's not doing that haphazardly he's not just saying well I kind of like the phonetics of this name and then he just sort of gives the name and God is actually not in the business of naming that many people Therefore, as you read through the Bible, when you see that God names someone, that's always significant. God is always accentuating something important in that moment in salvation history where he's saying, listen, I want you to notice this. I want you to see what I'm about to do through this person. Now, God names very few people. He, it's even smaller number, the, the number of people that he names from the womb. God's... Uh, normally in the business of renaming people. So the earthly parents will name a child and then God will say, well, I want to change this person's name because what I'm about to do through him or her is so significant. Let's just go through some of these names that God has changed. A change in name, as you're reading through the Bible, this is a a rule, it's a trustworthy rule. A change in name is a change in destiny. It's It's an accentuation at that point in salvation history. So we start with Abram. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. Abraham means father of many. Uh, and, And really there's an implication father of many peoples or nations. This reminds us that the salvation that God started with Abraham would be not just for his biological descendants, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. So God wants to make sure in the naming of the man that he starts with that we have that clear. And then there is his wife, Sarai, which means princess. And so God changed her name to Sarah, which means princess. That's a very fascinating one because the meaning of her name doesn't change. And yet God wants to mark her as significant in salvation history. And what we know is that she becomes a mother of the king. And when God gives her the name Sarah, changing her name from princess to princess, what he's saying is the king is going to come from you. You'll go back and read that. I believe it's in Genesis 17. The king is going to come from you. Now this is theologically potent because we know that who is the king but God alone. Like He, he spends so much time in the Old Testament asserting that point, that, that he alone is the king. And then he names a woman. The king is going to come from you. I'm going to come from you. Implication that we find out later on. Then there's Jacob... Who is renamed Israel, and Israel means wrestles with God, one who wrestles with God. And, and this is God's relationship with his people all the way through. He's continually wrestling with his people. And, and even when his people are wrestling and resisting, and that's true of Israel, it's true of us, isn't it? Even when God's people are wrestling and resisting him, God holds on to them and ultimately cripples them so that he might bless them. So the name Israel is just that, that reminder that, that even while we wrestle with God, he will grab hold of us. He will uh, cripple us in some way so that we become dependent on him and so that we will cry out for blessing as Israel did, as Jacob did, and then he blesses us. Uh, Joshua's name, I didn't include it here because we're not, it's Moses who renames Joshua. Joshua's original name was Hoshea. And then he's renamed Joshua, which is the name of our Messiah, Jesus. And Joshua means the Lord saves. Then there's Solomon. Tell me if you know what, what Solomon means. David named his son Solomon Shalom. Oh. What's Shalom mean? Peace, right? Peace. Shalom, peace. And O oh is, is is just means his peace. His at the end. So, so David, you'll remember, had received all these wonderful promises from God that, that, that God was going to establish an eternal kingdom, an eternal dynasty. He was going to build his house through David. And then what does David do? But he just goes in and he sins brilliantly. Not in a good way, but it, it, with bright paints. You know, you can't miss it. And the thing that David did with Bathsheba, and the thing that David did in, in killing Bathsheba's husband Uriah, displeased the Lord. And so we have a theological crisis. What about these unconditional promises that God had given? Bathsheba's child, the the child of the adultery, died. Now if you're David, what are you thinking? Have I lost that which God had promised me? Then Bathsheba conceives again. And so David says, oh, shalom. Oh, his peace. God is communicating to me through this son, that that I have not lost his peace. Then God does something absolutely astounding. He says, you haven't gone far enough, David. I name this son Jedidiah, which means the David of the Lord, which means that I'm going to continue the promises that I gave to you. I now give to him and to his descendants. It's not just peace. And what does David mean? My beloved or Beloved. Solomon was renamed by God the beloved of the Lord, the David of the Lord, saying peace is not enough, and he, he, he takes it up a notch. So you see that when God names people, it's significant. Then there's Simon, who Jesus renames Peter, which means rock. And he renames him right after he confesses, Simon confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God on this rock, on this confession, God will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against those who proclaim with Simon that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Then we have Saul, and we're not told who renamed Saul, so it probably wasn't God, but Saul changed his name to Paul, the apostle Paul, and Paul means small, which is an ironic name for the man through whom God delivered most of the New Testament. right? But a, a constant reminder for Paul, as he even recounted his name, that he was small. He was an insignificant man and, and until God took a hold of him. In fact, not only was he insignificant, but he was an enemy of Christ and his church. He was killing Christians. He was persecuting the Savior of the world. And so he he named himself Paul to remind himself that he was small. He was not great. God was great. When God names a person, that name is significant. This morning, our focus is on the name of John. His name is John. It's in our preaching text. His name is John. These are the first words of Zechariah. After nine months of having gone deaf and mute, we'll get into that. we we'll say, well, I thought he was just mute. We'll see that there's good reason to believe that he was both deaf and mute. Unable to hear, unable to speak. And after uh, he, God opens his ears and opens his mouth, his very first words are, his name is John. This is significant for us, and it comes at a very important moment in salvation history as we're flipping from Old Testament to New Testament, from Old Covenant to New Covenant. The one that will announce this transition, his name is John. We're going to explore this statement with three questions. The first question is this, who named John? Second question was is why was Zechariah deaf and mute for 9 months? The third question that we're going to look at is what is the significance of John's name and the way in which he received that name. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 57. As you're finding your spot, would you please stand? What we're about to read is the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Luke. These are the words of God Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 64. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, Blessing God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have preserved this word for us that his name is John. I pray this morning as we look at the significance of this name uh, that it would change our understanding of of John the Baptist and his ministry, his purpose, the way in which you used him, Uh, that it would change the way that we relate to you, at least enhance the way that we relate to you. I pray that your spirit would be among us, ministering to each of us according to our individual need. I pray that your grace would be upon me, that you would help me to speak your word truthfully and faithfully. Reveal Jesus Christ to us this morning and glorify yourself. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah, our King, and our God. Amen. Please be seated. So our first question is, who named John? Who's responsible for giving this this child his name? Was it Elizabeth? If you look at verse 57, uh, you see here that she bore a son. Everybody gathered together. On the eighth day, they came together to circumcise him, and and they wanted to name him Zechariah. So all of the relatives got together, and you know how that is when you have a child. Everyone feels that they should tell you what you ought to name your child. And so you just don't say anything, because you don't even want anybody to weigh in on it. Well, this, hey, this happened to Elizabeth, too. Everyone's getting together. You should call him Zechariah after his father. And in fact, it was normal not to name sons after their father, but after their grandfather. And this is just a reminder to us in the text that Zechariah was old. He was old enough to be John's grandfather. And so just to mark this miraculous uh, birth, why don't you name him Zechariah? Not after his grandfather, but after his father. And then you can remind people that God gave you this child in your old age. I mean, that may be what they were thinking. We don't know exactly. But, but his mother, Elizabeth, answered, no. Verse 60, he shall be called John. So is Elizabeth the one who gets to name this child? Why, why would Elizabeth choose the name John? Well, probably it was because Zechariah had communicated in some way, probably by writing it down as we see later in the text, uh, that when this child is born, I'm not going to be able to speak. So it's going to fall to you, my darling wife, to to publicly announce his name. And I want you to name him John. We see that Zechariah, in fact, does confirm that this is the name that he wants, not Zechariah to honor himself or to honor his family, but he wants to name the child John. Now, why is that? Why did Zechariah come up with the name John? Well, if you'll remember back many weeks, just flip backwards to Luke 1, verse 13. Zechariah is going into the temple. He's performing his priestly duty, which is a great honor. You only get to do this one time in your life. So he enter, enters into the temple and he's approaching uh, through the holy place, toward the Holy of Holies, and he comes to the most frightful place in the world, which is that threshold, uh, or the threshold, sorry, between the holy place and the holy of Holies. That's where the altar of incense was. That's where he was to do his priestly duty and light the incense, and there the angel Gabriel shows up. And so he was greatly afraid. But the angel said to him, this is Luke 1, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So who, was it Elizabeth? Yes. Was it Zechariah? Yes. Was it Gabriel? Yes, in a sense. But if we kept reading there in the, in the following verses, we're told that Gabriel stands in the very presence of God, and he was there to deliver the word of God for the first time in over 400 years, to Israel, specifically to Zechariah. And so, who names this child? God Himself. It's God who names the child John. In fact, God names John and Jesus from the womb. They're the only two sons that I know of where God names the sons from the womb. So these names are very important to God. Uh, they, are, they are loaded with theological implication. God wants us to know something very important through the names of these sons. It's interesting to me as I was going through and I was looking for all the places where God names men and women. And when he names them and so on. Did you know... That for all of us who persevere till the end, all of us who have truly been saved, who, who don't have some counterfeit conversion, but have been born again unto a living hope, when we are raised back to life and we ascend up into heaven with, with Christ, that we will receive a new name. That God has a name, a specific name for each one of us that will be filled with theological and relational meaning. That that God will give you a name just as he gave John a name. Let me just read this for you. Listen, uh, Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone. That's the part I want us to see. I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's so beautiful. That's the, the kind of relationship that God is going to enter into us. That Just as he named John, just as he named Jesus and Abraham and Sarah and all the others he's going to give you a new name. It'll be a special name, and when you receive the name, it will make sense. It will fit. It will explain so much of of who you are and why you were created and the way in which God saved you and the way in which God used you in salvation history. And I I have to wonder when John gets there and he gets his white stone and he gets uh, the name, will it be John? (laughs) Oh, thanks. I already had that name. I I thought I got a secret name. I I don't know. Maybe he'll get another name. Uh, But we will all get our own names. God wants to reserve that part of fatherhood, you see, to name us. We're as dear and special to him as Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Solomon and John. And dare I even say Jesus. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We're all named from the same father. Now, if you're a woman, you say, well, what about me? Brothers there is not meant in a gender uh, exclusive way, but it's it's a positional title. Brothers and sisters if we want to, but brothers in Christ. Siblings, meaning all children who share of the same father. So the first question, who named John? God named John. Which means that the name that God gave to John is really important. We're going to get to what it means, but that's, you know, trying to build a little suspense here. What what does the name John mean and why is it significant? That's our third question. Let's now look at our second question. Why was Zechariah deaf and mute for nine months? Now you might say, well, I I know that he was unable to speak, but was he deaf? Just go back to uh, Luke 1 verse 18. The angel Gabriel gives him all of uh, God's message, and then Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How will I know that I'll have a son? It's not possible for me to have a son, he's saying. How will I know? And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent. And unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Just notice this: you will be silent and you'll be unable to speak. Now, when you read that in English, it just seems like you will be silent, meaning you will not be able to make noise. So we say, Well, he's just mute. He he was just unable to speak, and, and, and it may be it's not entirely clear. I, I I got to admit it. It's not entirely clear in the in the original language either. But it could also mean that you will you you will be in silence. You'll be unable to hear, and you'll be unable to speak. You you won't receive sound. You will not make sound. I I think that's the better translation of this text it has deeper significance if you look for the implication why was it that he was um, cursed in this way temporarily without the ability to hear without the ability to speak just before we move on I want to just remind you that um, in verse 64 no sorry go to verse 62 Elizabeth has just said, no, we're going to name him John. And then they say, well, but that, that defies convention. Nobody in your family is named John. And then they sign to him. So, so they, they, they gesture. They make gestures. Zechariah, what do you want to call the son? Your child. means he couldn't hear. Why? What's the significance of this? Well, we know that uh, already we're told that Gabriel says, it's because you did not believe. There's, there's a sense in which this is a punishment for a lack of faith, that uh, whatever it is else, God wants to rebuke Zechariah personally and then publicly for a lack of faith. But I'm not convinced that that's enough. I, that, that is true, but I think that's insufficient as a response because uh, there are lots of people that have done lots of things and they were never rebuked with silence and the inability to make noise. So there's got to be an additional implication, an additional reason that God would make him unable to hear and speak. I said uh, many weeks ago that this gave John the first words about Jesus, even from the womb, that as as Mary came in and and greeted Elizabeth, John leaped in Elizabeth's womb, and then she, filled with the Holy Spirit, declared and confirmed that, that Mary was, in fact, Pregnant with the Son of God, with the Christ. So it gives John the first word. I think that's true. Thirdly, I think that, that this silence, this inability to speak, accentuates the prophecy that, that, that Zechariah says once he is able to speak. I mean, there's something about, wow, this man couldn't talk for, for nine months. He couldn't even hear. Then he names his son John and he breaks out into a prophecy. It, it adds weight, credence to that prophecy. We're going to look at that next week. There's a fourth reason that I think is very important. And that is, I believe that it accentuates the naming of John. When is it that that Zechariah gets the ability to hear and to speak again? It's precisely at the moment, not on the same day or the same week, but it's at the precise moment when we are told that he confirms that the name of the son is John, which means that the naming of this son is significant. We can't miss it. God has underscored it with nine months of silence. Consequently, I find it interesting that if you are unable to hear and you're unable to speak symbolically, you can't receive God's word and you can't utter God's word. You can't hear and you can't utter. And I wonder, I wonder if Zechariah here is not a personification for Israel over the last 400, 500 years. That the nation itself was in silence. God didn't speak to them. That the nation itself had no prophet. God never spoke a word to them through a prophet. So just as Israel had been in silence and unable to speak... So Zechariah embodies Israel's experience in those nine months. I think it's significant because as Zechariah names John, we get a prophet on the scene again, and God is about to speak again through John in a powerful way so that the nation Israel, as God speaks through John, the nation Israel better be ready to hear as God has removed the silence Of five centuries so it's very significant brings us all to our third question and then all of this drives to our our third question I mean we've said God is the one who named John we're also we also affirm that Zechariah was unable to hear and unable to speak for nine months to accentuate the naming of John among other things so what's the big deal I mean, John seems like a pretty plain name, doesn't it? In our cultural context, John is a very plain name. It's not an exciting name. I'm sorry if you're named John. But my name's Dirt, remember. And and by the time we get to the end of this message, you see John's a beautiful name. A marvelous name. So what's the significance? Well, what does John mean? John means God is gracious. God is gracious. After 500 years of silence, no prophets in Israel, God went silent. The very first thing that he wants to declare to the world is this, God is gracious. And he does it by naming the last and according to Jesus the greatest prophet of the old covenant, God is gracious. Now this is peculiar to me. If if I was again in previous weeks we have discussed how John is a personification of the Old Covenant, that if you want to understand the Old Covenant, you look, you look to John's ministry, that, that he is the last prophet, he is the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, but he also embodies, he represents the Old Covenant, he's its champion, and, and, and we're going to look in, in a few weeks at John's ministry, and we see in John's ministry everything that, that God had hoped to accomplish in the Old Covenant. So you would think, if you wanted to name your champion for the Old Covenant, would you come up with the name John? God is gracious? Why not God is holy? That would have been a great name, I would have thought. For a prophet of the Old Covenant, God is holy. Or why, why not God is righteous? Or why not fear God? Those are all good names, and they would have captured the Old Covenant so well. So why God is gracious? Well, the Old Covenant clearly did condemn. You, you can't read through the book of Romans without seeing that, that one of the primary functions of the Old Covenant, not the only, but one of the primary, like, is that, can you even say one of the primary uh, the primary or one of the important functions of the old covenant is that it condemned it revealed sin, it condemned sin it 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 showed us our inability to be righteous it it showed us that that we cannot do it except for those who are self righteous right and those who said well i think i think i 've done pretty good even Paul himself, under the law blameless now paul by the time he is Paul and not Saul, he knows that to be under the law blameless, he, he still had a, a heart problem. He still understood that he didn't fulfill the depth of the law. He, he was a lawbreaker, and so he threw himself on the grace of God. And I think that's the point, that, that even while the old covenant shows us our sin, even while the old covenant does condemn, even while the old covenant shows that God is holy and righteous, that we are sinners... That we are rebels. The Old Covenant also points us in the direction of God's grace. And we see this in the Old Testament because we see men and women under the Old Covenant who come to the end of themselves. And they who are really, really committed to the Old Covenant. And they're reading and they're pouring over it, and they love Psalm 119. And they say, oh, I love your law, I love your law, I love your law. And then they say, but the law is killing me. And these old covenant men and women, they fall down before God and they say, God, I've lost. I've lost myself. I stand condemned. Woe is me. And then the old covenant does its work. And points these men and women to the grace of God. And they say, I have no choice. I have no option. I have, I have no other way but to believe, God, that you are gracious with sinners. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Is that not the point of the Old Covenant? To show us that God is gracious. Even even while He is righteous, God is gracious. And, and, And He has tucked it into the history of the Old Testament Scriptures so that Paul can say in Romans 4, go back and look again at your Scriptures, at your heroes of the faith. At Abraham. Was Abraham justified when he was circumcised? Was he justified by keeping the works of the law? He wasn't under the Old Covenant, meaning the Mosaic Covenant, but there were still instructions for him to follow. And and Paul says, was he justified that way? No. He was justified on a starry night. When God took him outside, he said, look up at the stars. See how many stars there are. Count them if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed God. And what? What? It was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says, if that's not enough, what about David? Everybody talks about David. David was this great man. He was a, he was a terrible sinner. A terrible sinner. Not just with Bathsheba and Uriah, by the way. Yeah, you, you just read his life carefully. This man was a sinner. He's beloved by God. Why? Why? Well, Romans 4, blessed is the man with whom God doesn't count his sin. David, for all of his sin, looked hard into the law and said, if I stand under the law, I stand condemned. Oh, God have mercy. And he did. It seems to be the point that God wants to make when he names John. God is gracious. Is there a better name for a prophet who is called to embody the end of the old covenant? Because that's the point. The, these men and women in the, old, in the old covenant, they came to the end of themselves. They came to the end of the old covenant. They said, I, I can't do anything. You've got to take this covenant off of me. They came to the end of the covenant. God took it off and then just poured out the blessings of the new covenant on them back in time. And they were saved that way. Is there any better name for the prophet, for the man, that God says, I'm gonna raise him up and he's gonna declare an end to the old covenant. I am taking the old covenant, says God, off of my people. And I am gonna open up for them a river of living water that flows bright red from Calvary's Mountain. There's no better name for the point that God wants to make in his transition from the old to the new. God is gracious. Now, I love this. God names two men. I mean, There may be others. This is a big book, okay? So if you find where God named another man from the womb or a woman from the womb, you tell me. But as far as I know, he names two individuals from the womb. John and Jesus. John means God is gracious. What does Jesus mean? The Lord saves. So so at this pivotal time, right, between the Testaments, after 500 years of silence, this is what God seems to want us to know. John Jesus, God is gracious, the Lord saves. God is gracious, the Lord saves. God is gracious, the Lord saves. Now, now, if you're Israel, and you're just thinking back, wow, we've been under oppression for over 800 years from the time of Ahaz and, and Hezekiah. They who walked in darkness, oppressed by the Assyrians, run over by the Babylonians, controlled by the Persians, traded to the, to, the, to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. No prophet, 500 years. They who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. For unto us a child is given. Unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. You see the motif of names there. His name will be called. Now we get to that time of fulfillment. John God is gracious. Jesus, the Lord saves. What is it that God wants us to know? What is it that God wants us to celebrate? Where does he want us to derive our identity? Is it in the holiness of God? Is it in the righteousness of God? Those are things to be feared for, sure. And those, those, those attributes of God obviously give us a right, right understanding of who He is and who we are. But where does God want us to accentuate our identity? God is gracious. God, the Lord saves. God is gracious. The Lord saves. Now that makes no sense without the holiness of God. That makes no sense without the thousands of years of the old covenant. That makes no sense if we are self-justified. But in, in the context of the Old Covenant and the holiness and righteousness of God springs forth an identity purchased for us by Jesus Christ. Now to summarize, this doesn't mean that we're done. But just to summarize where we're at To this point, God named the last and the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, God is Gracious. And he was to announce the ministry of the Lord saves. And God has accentuated what he is doing in salvation history by causing Zechariah to go deaf and mute for nine months as an embodiment of the nation Israel under the Old Covenant. But this father Zechariah regains his ability to hear. He regains his ability to speak so that at the moment when John is named by his father, the name that he received from God, this man might proclaim that God is gracious. So if God so desired to emphasize his grace at the turning point of the Old and the New Testaments, how ought we to relate to God? God. As a new covenant people, our primary lens through which we ought to understand ourselves and our relationship to God if we have given our sin to Christ is through the lens of grace. Through the lens of grace. Now by this, I do not mean cheap grace. I am not for a moment advocating licentious grace. As a a small aside, I I understand that we don't know each other that well yet. You don't have years and years of, of my preaching to understand where I'm coming from. But let me just share with you that no one has ever accused me of preaching light on sin. No one has ever accused me of of being light on the holiness of God. In fact, if if I had to say at, at my previous church, that might be where I would have gone more often... So this is not about me trying to to just uh, give sort of a, a quick and easy let's feel good about ourselves grace message. That's not what this is about. But and I was wrestling through this with with Angie uh, last week, and it's just it's interesting to me how my emphasis has shifted. Not that I was uh, devoid of grace. I asked I asked Ange if she thought, was I, was I not preaching grace before and now I'm preaching grace? I'm giving you this insight because I think it's important for you to receive the message. Have I changed? Am I overcompensating for something? What is happening here? And Ange affirmed to me, and I, I believe it to be true, that no, I've always sought a, a balance In the scriptures that God is holy and he is a God who who loves and extends grace. So I wonder, and perhaps we could sort this out together as a church. I wonder if the emphasis in my spirit has less to do with, with sort of my understanding of the word of God. But the people to whom God has called me to shepherd. Is it possible that my previous church needed to be shaken out of their complacency. That they had to be reminded of who God was. That, they, that God is not to be tempered with. He, you're not to just dance lightly into His presence. You're not to domesticate Him or to make Him a cuddly, cozy God. Is it possible that, that the, the Spirit of God working through me uh, in my preparation helped me to see that what that group needed was, was to be shaken up a little bit? They, that they would not be too casual or cavalier with God. But but maybe, and I don't know you that well yet, but maybe that's not the same tone that, that this church needs. Maybe what this group needs, what, maybe the, that which God really wants us to hear, is that He's gracious. That He loves us. that That He has... He has gone to great lengths, as Blair said earlier, to purchase our salvation. So without, without forgetting His holiness, without forgetting His righteousness, wash yourselves in the grace of God and, and be glad. Be glad. Rejoice, for, for He has done it. What, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Is finished. There's no more work to be done. It's a great trade. We give him our, our our sin and he imputes his righteousness to us. He, he dies. He receives the wrath of the holy God. I'm not doing away with the wrath of God, I'm just putting it in its right place on the cross. The wrath of God fell on the cross. The wrath of God doesn't fall on his church. And then he died, and he, he took our sin, and he, he deposited our sin in the grave where it belongs. And then he came back to life, and our sins stayed in the ground, fully paid. Fully paid, it is finished, it is done. God is gracious, the Lord saves. And we are united with Christ in His death and resurrection. We are united with Christ. Now, of course, we are united with Christ if we believe in Him, if we we believe He is who He is, if we put our confidence in Him, if we put our trust in Him, if we move our affections toward Him, if we love Him. There's no more condemnation for us. I learned this the hard way, and, and I don't have time to get into it this morning, but a few years ago, I realized that though, though I understood the gospel, I understood grace, there was, there was a thread of very real legalism braided into my life, into my understanding of my relationship with God. And, and I wanted to fill up that which was already full. I wanted to be more righteous. I wanted to be more right with God. How dare I? How dare I rob from the cross of Christ? So I'm not talking about cheap grace. I'm talking about costly grace. I'm not talking about licentious grace where, Oh good, we well, just go out and sin more. We don't. We don't go out and sin more. But how does God want us to identify with Him? Forgiven. Cleansed. Made holy. Sanctified. Born again under His grace. No longer under His condemnation. True grace can only be properly understood, received, and embraced with a full understanding of who God is, of His holiness, and of our sinfulness. And yet, that is the context to our identity. That is no longer who we are in Christ. Therefore, our theological emphasis must shift. It must shift. God has indicated to us that that this is how he wants us to relate to him. God is gracious. The Lord saves. John, Jesus. Our theological emphasis must shift from the God who is transcendent to the God who is imminent. From the God who is untouchable to the God who became flesh. From the God who condemns to the God who reconciles. From the God who judges to the God who saves. From the God who is wrathful to the God who loves. Now, are all those things true of God? Yes. I did not say we forget the former to embrace the latter. But our emphasis shifts now from the former to the latter. Without denying the former, we embrace the latter. And therefore, our primary identity also must shift from those who are unclean to those who have been made clean, from rebels and enemies of God to children of God, from slaves to sin to slaves of righteousness, from sinners to saints. From sinners to saints. From sinners to saints. We were enemies and now we're holy. We're holy. We've been made holy. We're holy. We're holy. And we will never, ever be more righteous. No matter what we do or don't do. Than we are right now if we are in Christ. We will never be loved more or less by God, no matter what we do or don't do, than we are right now, if we are in Christ. And so we rejoice, so we worship, so we... We are glad. We are filled with joy. And we go out into the world and we say, I've been set free and now I'm going to live for Christ. Because Not because I have to to be right with Him, but because I am right with Him, because I want to glorify Him more in my life. I want to be a vessel through which He might glorify Himself. And I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has done this good thing for me. And I want others to see what He has done for me. And I want others to join in with what He has done for me. And I want to go out and I want to share the good good news of John Jesus God is gracious the Lord saves Therefore primarily we must think of ourselves no longer as sinners but as blood bought saints Do we still sin sure. There's not a day that's going to go by before now and either the return of Christ or your death. You will not sin. But that sin does not define you. It doesn't define me. We wage war against our sin, but we do not identify as sinners anymore. Except to say that we are saints who are waging war against the sinful tendencies of our flesh. And we cry out, wretched man that I am, I want to be more holy. But that's not the same thing as as identifying as a wretched sinner. Because only saints cry out like that. Sinners revel in their sin. And they love it. They love the darkness. We don't love the darkness. And so when we cry out, we're crying out because we have been made holy from the heart. You know, Paul preached in such a way that he opened himself up to misunderstanding. And he addresses this in his letters. He addresses it, for example, in Romans 6. Why do you think Paul had to say, Some people are slandering us by saying that we preach licentious grace. It's because he preached grace. So much did the Apostle Paul preach grace that people, after listening to him, said, that that man is is crazy. Don't listen to him. He's telling you to go out and sin more. And and Paul just says, that's not what I'm saying. And, And so hear me, that's not what I'm saying. But I would like to dance so close to the edge with Paul in preaching grace that some people will misunderstand what I'm trying to say. How can how can all of this be? How is it that we can leave here and and call ourselves saints and not sinners? John, God is gracious. The Old Covenant is heavy. It condemns. It kills. It is, well, let me nuance that. The Old Covenant doesn't kill. Sin kills us. But the Old Covenant reveals the sin that kills. That's a very important nuance. The Old Covenant, the law is good. It's righteous. It's spiritual. But what God wants us to know at the turning of the age is that the last and the greatest prophet of the old covenant, his name was John. God is gracious. We see the grace of God by taking the old covenant, lifting it off of our shoulders, and putting it on the shoulders of his son on the cross. It's the Lord who saves, and he has saved us, and this is Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. We are overjoyed. We can't even hardly say it, that that we are no longer condemned, but that we are free Uh, We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, that you have saved us, you have shown us your grace. I pray for us, Lord, that you would help us to identify as those who have been made clean, as children, as those who are slaves to righteousness, who will be glorified one day, that you will eradicate every trace of sin. That which you started in us, you will see to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Already accomplished on the cross to be fulfilled at his return. We praise you and we magnify your name. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.